Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you for the truth that they reveal about you, even as we've just sung the realities of what you have done for us in Christ. And we thank you for the sufficiency of your word to give us all that we need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would use your truth today to shape our thinking, to affect our lives. Might we be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a great joy to be with you all this morning. I bring greetings from countryside. Uh, You know, our family personally and the elders and church there are just so thankful for you all and for the work that the Lord is doing here at Northlake and uh, just excited to to be with you. Last time I was with you guys, I think you were still in Cinnamon Creek and there was a picture of a guy who looked kind of like me shooting archery (laughs) behind me. And so it's nice to be here in in your real home. Thankful for, uh, for that. Well, this Father's Day, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Steve Lawson cites a study in one of his commentaries from a team of New York State sociologists who once attempted to calculate the lasting influence of a father's life on his children and those who would follow in subsequent generations. In this study, The sociologists researched two men who lived at the same time in the 18th century that there was a lot of data about their descendants. The first was a man named Max Jukes. He was an unbeliever, a man of no principles, and his wife also lived and died in unbelief. His lasting influence was among the 1,200 known descendants, 440 lived lives of outright debauchery, 310 were paupers and vagrants, 190 public prostitutes, 130 convicted criminals, 100 alcoholics, 60 thieves, and 7 murderers. Not exactly a distinguished legacy. The other man studied was Jonathan Edwards, a man you're likely familiar with, uh, the noted colonial pastor and theologian, one who was so influential in the Great Awakening, came from a godly heritage and married a, a godly woman of great faith, and together they sought to leave an entirely different kind of legacy, Among his descendants were 300 clergymen, missionaries or theological professors, 120 college professors, 110 lawyers, over 60 physicians, over 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 presidents of universities, numerous giants in American industry, three U.S. congressmen and a vice president of the United States. See, the reality is fathers matter. We want to Consider today on this Father's Day, Ephesians 6.4 and what the Bible says it looks like to be a faithful father. What does faithful parenting look like? Now certainly obedience to God's command as parents doesn't guarantee the legacy of, of Jonathan Edwards. If you listen today, that doesn't mean your great-grandson will be a vice president of the United States But it does contain the wisdom that God gives us for how to influence our children. Our text is a foundational verse on fatherhood and and parenting. And regardless of where you are on your parenting journey, some of you in this room are simply a child who has parents. That's all you think about regarding parenting. Some of you hope one day to be a parent. Some of you are just beginning that season of life. Some of you are like, 
My wife Christy and I, with our kids towards the end of their time, many, several of them, of being in our home, or maybe you're parenting adult kids and, and grandparenting. Regardless of where you are, we ought to embrace God's wisdom and commands for our family and encourage others to do the same. Now, the book of Ephesians flows from the first three chapters about our position in Christ, about who we are in him as those who have been saved by grace through faith, if we are in Christ, to our practice as those who are his, to how we live worthy of what God has done in our lives and reflecting his priorities in our life in a way that brings him glory. And this verse that we'll consider today occurs in a section on Christian relationships in the family. If you look back towards the end of chapter 5, Paul has already focused on husbands and wives, how they live together and treat one another. And then in the beginning of chapter 6, he's focused on children, and now he comes to parents and specifically fathers. Read with me Ephesians 6 verse 4. It says, fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This verse begins by identifying the parental responsibility of fathers. You notice how it begins with the word fathers. This is no accident. If you look back at at Ephesians 6.1, it said, children, obey your parents. Paul had just talked about children and parents, and he used in 6.1 the, the normal word that would be used for parents, and he transitions here to a word speaking specifically of fathers. Now, he's not excluding ladies and mothers. This word can be used a little more generically, a little more broadly. Like in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it's used of Moses' parents, so ladies keep paying attention. But it's primarily reminding us of a truth about fathers. Children, this is also important for you to know what your parents are called to do by God. If you'd struggle to accept the things your parents are doing, your struggle is probably not simply with your parents, it's with God himself. And so kids, I want you to understand what God tells your parents to be doing so that you can be wise and embrace that, knowing you need to be parented as God has designed. That said, this verse begins, fathers, if we, if we zoom out from this text and consider the rest of scripture, it's clear that all of us have a responsibility to the next generation. We could look at verses like Psalm 145.4 that says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Every believer has a responsibility, if they are a lover of Christ and passionate about God's glory, to pass that along to the subsequent generation. The Bible is also clear that godly mothers have an incredibly important role and influence in their children's lives. You see that in scripture through things like the example of faithful mothers. You might think of Timothy's mother in, in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul said he was mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. We can think of many mothers in Scripture and the significant influence they had on their children. And, and you see that in the instruction given to children how to respond to their mothers. Proverbs 6.20 says, don't forsake the teaching of your mothers. But in this text and others, we are reminded that fathers 
have a unique responsibility and role in the lives of their children and grandchildren. You see, Paul is reminding us here in verse 4 of what he's already communicated back in chapter 5, that fathers are the designated spiritual leader in the home. Ephesians 5.23 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. This began with the, the first father, Adam. God created Adam first. God gave Adam responsibilities and a wife to help him as he fulfilled those. And God held Adam responsible for the sin in the garden. Men, if you are, are uh, in this room as a believer, God holds you responsible in that way as well for your family. Th- this emphasis is continued throughout Scripture. I love Psalm 78, verses 5 and 6, which says, God established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers that they should teach them to their children. God says, I've, I've given you my word, my will, and I've, I've commanded the fathers to teach those to the children. But not just even having one generation in mind. He says that the children to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. You think about that verse, it's fathers telling their children so that the children who haven't been born yet will ultimately tell it to their children. That's a lot of generations looking forward. That's how fathers should be thinking and and the responsibility that God has given to fathers. Deuteronomy 4, 9 says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. You know, many men are tempted to take a passive role in parenting or grandparenting. Maybe because their, their wives are around the children more or they seem more gifted in that or they're more comfortable engaging with children. Maybe because they're simply selfish and they want to do what they want to do instead of serving and engaging in the home. Maybe some it's because they feel inadequate. Maybe they've never seen a great model in their own home or they have just not had clarity on what godly fatherhood looks like. Then we must resist that temptation and embrace the parental responsibility God has given us as fathers. Having highlighted that responsibility, Paul moves to a, a second reality about parenting in this verse, which is the potential failures of parents. He warns fathers with a negative command, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. This verse has a a negative command at the beginning, do not do this, and then a positive command, but bring them up. We fail as parents when we disobey either. The first potential failure of fathers and parents that is clearly stated in this text is that of provoking your children. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't stir up anger in your children. If you've been a a parent or you've been a child, you know this is very easy to do. And as a parent, it's very easy to miss, to not recognize when we're doing this. That's why God in his wisdom highlights this for us as parents. 
If this was rare and almost never happened and we always knew when we did, you know, God wouldn't need to emphasize this is one verse on parenting and this is half of that verse. Don't provoke your children to anger. There's a, a similar idea in Colossians 3.1. It says, or in chapter 3, verse 21, sorry, which says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Don't, don't exasperate them. Don't drive them to discouragement or resentment so that they lose heart. Children are responsible for their attitudes and actions before the Lord, but parents have a powerful influence on them and will be responsible before the Lord for the impact they have and the way they treat them. I think there's a larger lesson about leadership here that, that you know, we, we have a responsibility in any leadership position to, to be thoughtful about how what we do is going to stir up the response of others, although we're all responsible ourselves for how we respond. So as parents, we should not parent in a way that provokes our kids to anger. Now that doesn't mean that every time our kids get angry, we have provoked them. Kids don't think that. Don't think every time I get angry, it's because my parents have provoked me. No, it's, it's likely the result of the sinfulness in your own heart and what you want and your parents standing in the way of that. But parents, we have to be careful that we are not provoking them to that or that we're not parenting in a way that exasperates them. Again, doesn't mean every time our kids are resentful or discouraged that we have done this, but we have to be careful to consider how we have affected them. How can you provoke your kids to anger or exasperate them such that they lose heart? I want to just briefly consider some common ways we can do this as parents for you and I to, to consider. You know, we can provoke our kids to anger by inconsistent expectations or discipline. If the standard is always changing, it's a source of frustration and can cause our kids to be angry. You know, if one day it's wrong for your toddler to touch the TV and the next day it's fine. One day it's fine to get your own snack. The next day it's not. One day it's not a big deal if they talk back to you. The next day it is. You are exasperating and provoking your children. It, we can do that by excessive or unreasonable expectations as well or discipline. Certainly on, on one extreme of that is, is physically abusing a child, being excessive in our discipline to that extent. But I think we can do this in more subtle ways too, by, by not being age appropriate. One of the, the ways this is often done is by confusing childishness and sinful foolishness. You know, kids are kids. They do childish things. Sometimes they make messes because they're kids and that's what happens. Sometimes they spill things. Kids also do foolish and sinful things. And when we don't recognize the difference and respond appropriately, we can provoke or exasperate our children. Sometimes we simply expect more of them than they're capable of educationally or in a hobby. We expect them to be the best in, in, compared to others instead of just doing their best. We can provoke them as well with a selfish use of authority. If they see us using the God-given authority that we have been delegated with for our own gain, if, if us telling our children to obey is primarily me sitting on the couch ordering them to do things and they never see a servant's heart, we can exasperate and provoke our kids. 
We can do it through favoritism as well, showing favor to one child over another in a sinful way. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't treat your children differently. Your kids are different, and there are intentional ways that you may choose to treat one differently than others. But we need to be careful not to show favoritism. We can provoke them by focusing on achievement more than character, by being harsh or nagging in our speech rather than encouraging, by humiliating our child with public critique or sarcastic comments. To consider more of this, I would commend to you two resources. One is the book uh, Faithful Parent by Stuart Scott and Martha Peace. There's a chapter on parents who provoke and a whole chapter in the book The Heart of Anger by Lou Priolo as well. As parents, we must guard against provoking or exasperating our children. A second potential failure of parents highlighted in this verse is that of neglecting your children. By this, I don't primarily mean the the CPS definition of neglect, of failing to provide the necessities in a safe environment for your children, though we certainly must be careful to avoid that. I mean, rather a more subtle passive neglect. Notice how Paul continues. He says, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. This idea of parents bringing their children up is is actually the same word used back in 529 of how a husband is to care for his wife. This is the idea of, of bringing up, of cultivating, of tending, of raising your children. Some of you probably can grow, uh, grow plants in your garden, although it's difficult when it's 105 outside, but um, you, you have to cultivate and tend those plants so that they grow and thrive and flourish. That's what the picture is here. Children need parenting. They need fathers and mothers who are engaged in their life. You know, there's a misconception among many today that children need to be allowed to simply find their own way. That it's wrong for others to try to influence them in a a particular vein, whether talking about sexual orientation or career decisions. Kids just need to be allowed to follow their own heart. But that is simply not true. God calls for us to be active in influencing the coming generation and particularly for parents to take responsibility for that in bringing up their kids. This is necessary because of the outside influences that will seek to sway your children The world and Satan are not idly sitting by as unbiased observers, are they? Waiting for your children to make up their mind on what they'll believe and how to live. No, just like Satan was in the garden tempting Eve, he's working tirelessly to entice your children with lies. But it's not simply the world's ideologies and wickedness that necessitates engaged parenting. It's it's also the realities of their own sinful hearts. You see, the the problem is not primarily external for your children and mine. It is internal. That's why we can't simply isolate our kids and say, if we just keep them away from all the other influences, they'll be fine. We should protect our children from outside influences, but they still have their own sinful heart. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness, not not childishness, but foolishness, a a disposition and pattern of rebellion against God. That's what foolishness is. A a way of sin. J.C. Ryle put it this way. 
He said, remember, children are born with a decided bias toward evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell what her tender infant may grow up to be, tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish. She may or uh, or may not be any of these things. It's all uncertain. But one thing the mother can say with certainty, he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. It is natural for us to do wrong. Our hearts are like the earth on which we tread. Let it alone, and it is sure to bear weeds. That's children. That's why Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, Don't hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. See, your kids need to be rescued. They are on a a path to hell on their own. They need to be parented. They need to be influenced. They need parents to engage in their lives. You see, we cannot be passive in our parenting. We cannot neglect bringing up our children You know, not everyone who neglects their children does so intentionally or maliciously. Why do even well-intentioned parents fail to faithfully bring up their children? You know, sometimes it's a reflection of our own self-centeredness. We're spending time on what we want, on our own career or hobbies. Sometimes it's a it's that we're focusing our mental and physical energy on those things and instead of focusing on our home and family and kids. Sometimes I think it's just overwhelmedness. We, we maybe uh, are, are overwhelmed by all the things in life, maybe our own lack of discipline and struggling to manage all the responsibilities and commitments, and, and so we neglect to prioritize parenting our children. Sometimes it's a misplaced emphasis or priorities, a focus on providing financially the best for them uh, instead of interaction with them. Sometimes it's focusing on all the other things that are involved in parenting, academics and athletics and hobbies and all those things and neglecting the focus on the heart. So what does it look like for a parent to faithfully and actively engage in bringing up their children, not neglecting them? Well, notice the third reality Paul highlights in this text regarding parenting, which is the particular tools of parents, the particular tools of of parents. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God has given us as parents two primary tools in our toolbox. He says, Bring them up, nourish them in the discipline and instruction. These two nouns are, are similar, they have some overlap of use and what they can mean, but they're also distinct from one another. The first is discipline. It refers to training or, or discipline is how it's often used. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and we see this word used multiple times of God's discipline of his children. And it's, it's very instructive for us to think of the example of God as our father. Certainly there are aspects of God's fatherhood that are unique to him, but the manner in which he responds to his children is a a pattern for us of how we are to respond to ours. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It says God God's children are, are, it's clear that you are God's child because God disciplines. He disciplines those whom he loves. It's a lie when parents say, I love my kids too much to discipline them. No, they love themselves too much to discipline their children because God says, if you love your child, if they're really a child of, that you love, you will in fact discipline them as he does. So God disciplines his children. Verse 9 continues, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a, a short time as seemed best, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." That's God's discipline. It's, it's looking towards the future, preparing and training towards the future. God is faithful to do that. It's not always pleasant. It's not always something we enjoy in the moment, but it is for our good. This same word is used again in 2 Timothy 3.16 of training. The scriptures train us in righteousness. Now when we think of, of discipline or training, the scriptures speak of it in a couple of different ways. You, you see it of, of corrective discipline, which is what we typically think of, the discipline that is in response to sin. If you think of God and the nation of Israel, when they failed to go into the promised land, what did he do? He disciplined them by having them in the wilderness for 40 years. When you see words like discipline, chastise, chasten, reproof, correct, that's what that is speaking of. But it's also formative training. Words like discipline, train, instruct. This is preemptive training. Think of a, of a sports practice maybe you've been a part of or watched. And, and you see people doing a variety of difficult things. My, my girls enjoy basketball. Our whole family does. I, I get to coach um, have coached several of my girls in the past. And if you come to a practice for basketball, you will see players running. Sometimes they're just running back and forth and then they go part way and it's called a suicide and it's real fun for the coach to watch uh, them do and not real fun for them to get to do. And you might think, why are they doing that? Well, it could be simply the fact that they need to run. That in games they're going to run and so as a coach you're making them run to prepare them for what's happening in the game. It could be that they were not paying attention and they were being lazy and they weren't trying. And so they're running as a consequence of something that they had failed to do. There's preemptive training, formative training, and corrective training. And they're, they're, they're similar and they often should, should overlap in the sense of preparing for the future but such is the case for us as parents as well. Think about it. You may have your child clean the bathroom. Why? Well, it might be a regular routine expectation of them intended to teach them how to work hard and serve others and do gross things and, and care for one's home because you want them to learn those things. 
but it also might be a consequence for sin in their life, the failure to obey their mother all afternoon. So when dad gets home from work, they get to clean the bathroom. And it's intended that, to teach them that sin has consequences and all the other things, how to serve and do gross things. Both formative training and corrective discipline are vital for children. We already looked at a couple verses in Proverbs briefly. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What does God say about that? He says the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs twenty-three thirteen: do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Discipline is a rescue mission with an eye towards the future of this life, but even more so an eye towards eternity. Ted Tripp in his excellent book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, if you've not read it as a parent, I encourage you to do so. It says the central focus of child rearing is to bring children to a sober assessment of themselves as sinners. The focal point of your discipline and correction must be your child seeing their utter inability to do the things God requires unless they know the help and strength of God. Discipline leads to the cross of Christ where sinful people are forgiven. Discipline is not to make your kids righteous. It's not to train them so they can obey God perfectly. It's to help them see their need for Christ, the fact that they need the gospel, that they cannot live as they ought, all the while training them for a life of love and obedience to him. Certainly there's much more we could say about this tool of discipline. We could look more at closely at Hebrews 12, God's discipline, and, and how that's pictured in passages like Deuteronomy 8. We, we could consider th- the importance of discipline when our kids are young. Proverbs warns us in Proverbs 19, 18, says, discipline your son while there is hope. Do not desire his death. He's saying it's important that at the formative years of our children that we are faithful in disciplining them. Men, don't expect your wife to shoulder that load alone. How how many fathers want to be the, the fun guy in the house when they get home from work and leave the discipline to the wife? Be an active participant and encourage your wife to prioritize that when your children are young. It takes a lot of time and energy, but it is worth it. We could look more closely at, at how to discipline, the various means of discipline. The Proverbs we've looked at refer to the rod of discipline. God clearly expects physical discipline to be a part of a primary part of how we discipline our children. It's also a, a picture of the, the larger ways that we can discipline as well, especially as our children age. Certainly we must never discipline in anger or in a, a manner that harms our child, but we want to be faithful to discipline them well. So we must be committed to disciplining our children The second tool God has given us as parents to bring up our children is that of instruction. Bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word is used in in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It says that the things that happened in the past were written for our instruction. It's used in Titus 3, 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. William Hendrickson uh, Great commentator defines it this way. He says, It is training by means of the spoken word 
Whether teaching, warning, or encouragement, instruction seeks to correct the thinking and to appeal to the will to change. Certainly our discipline, our, our, the way in which we structure life for our children and train them uh, with, with, uh, with all that, that involves, will involve instruction. We should talk in that process. But there, there are different emphasis how we train our children and discipline them and how we instruct them. We must instruct our children in the scriptures. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We see this very clearly in the example of, of Timothy and how Paul commended him and charged him to continue in what he had learned. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 says, you, however, Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Would that that could be said of our children, that from childhood, from infancy, from the time they were young, they knew the scriptures which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation. It's the scriptures that give us that wisdom. That's what our kids need more than anything. And we need to instruct our children in the scriptures with intentionality. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If, if Ephesians 6, 4 summarizes in the, in the New Testament uh, how we are to parent, Deuteronomy 6 gives really the, the Old Testament um, clarity uh, on, on parenting for the nation of Israel, both the content of what they were to be teaching their kids and how they were to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's who God is and how you're to respond to him. Verse 6, he says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This verse calls us to formal instruction with our children. That's the beginning of verse 7. He says, teach them diligently. There's to be an intentional effort at formal instruction, not formal like sitting in a classroom, But the expectation in ancient Israel was to systematically be teaching their own children. This was done through a series of feasts and festivals. It was done through regular interaction with their children. Now some worry that if you do formal teaching with your children, again, not necessarily classroom style, but intentional instruction, you will bore their their kids and cause them to be turned off. But I would say it's only true if it's boring to you. And if you don't live it out, if it's just an isolated part of your day that you're getting through to check a box, it will be. But if it is a a key focus of your life, it won't be. What does this look like? Well, it's things like family worship. Again, don't be intimidated by that. It's not a a service like this with sound system and, and preaching. But it is the same content just in your family, reading the Bible together, singing together, praying together, 
in a simple way that's appropriate for the age of your children. When they're young, starting with a good kid's Bible and reading a portion of the Bible together, using the resources of the church to help you and, and assist you in that way. We can instruct our kids formally with good kids' catechisms and scripture memory, listening to good music and reading good books together. We are to formally instruct, to intentionally instruct our children in the truth of God's word. But it's also about informal interaction. Notice verse 7, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And what? And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. One author, Tad Thompson, in his book Intentional Parenting, put it this way. He said, Moses understood that God's truth cannot effectively be taught if it is confined to the home or classroom. How will our children believe that the Bible is about all of life if we only talk about it during the Bible lesson? To put it another way, discipleship is most effectively accomplished when the practice is integrated into the rhythm of everyday life. A consistent time of family worship, for example, is a great discipleship practice, but it is no substitute for a lifestyle of discipleship that encompasses the breakfast table, the car, bedtime, errands, and chores. There's not a single moment in life that cannot be used as an opportunity for instruction. How can we have such informal interaction with our kids throughout the day? How can you and I be talking with our kids about God and the scriptures over the course of of the day? Well, it starts with our own thoughts and heart, doesn't it? We've got to be meditating. We've got to be thinking about the truth of God and his word. That's where verse 6 was in Deuteronomy 6. These words shall be on your heart. Then you can do this. It means we just are also responding faithfully to the circumstances of life, thinking about biblical truth, recognizing opportunities, you know, when it starts to rain or there's some other aspect of God's creation, it's a chance to talk with our kids about those things. When someone sins in your home, which happens occasionally, right, we have a chance to talk about what the scriptures have to say about those things. When There's illness or hardship or trials, the death of a loved one. We can bring the scriptures to bear. Also, it's just responding to the questions and statements of your kids, especially when they're they're young. They ask all kinds of things and and, uh, make all kinds of statements, and it's easy as a parent just to kind of tune out instead of taking those opportunities to discuss and, and interact about God's truth. You know, if you're a child or a teen in your parents' home, let me just encourage you to embrace these things God tells your parents to do. If your parents are disciplining you, they are obeying God and be thankful. If your parents are seeking to instruct you in God's word, they are seeking to obey God and be thankful you have that opportunity. As Proverbs chapter 6 verse 20 said, children are, are called to Observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Children, embrace this. Parents, embrace this. Give yourself wholeheartedly to using these tools that God has given you. Does that answer every question parents have? Does that tell you the the brand of whatever thing you're considering getting for your child is the best one and the right one that you should get? It doesn't. There's a lot of things that God leaves up to you as parents to make decisions that are wise for your children, but he says, bring your children up in the discipline 
and instruction of the Lord. Which brings us lastly and briefly to the primary focus of parents. Notice how this verse ends. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't parent to our own ends so our kids will be like we want them to be. We parent with a focus on and for the Lord. This means our parenting focus must be on the Lord. Your your authority as a parent is under that of Christ. Your instruction and discipline must be centered on Christ. Your goals for your kids should be centered on Christ. What is it that you desire most for your kids? Or, Or what would your kids say you desire most for them based on the priorities of your family and your interactions with them? It ought to be that they know and live for the Lord. But parenting, as we said, is not an isolated part of life, and so it's not just that our parenting focus must be on the Lord, but our personal focus must be on the Lord as well. That's where being a faithful parent starts. That's why Deuteronomy 6 starts with us loving the Lord with our heart and these words being on our heart. That's why it's impossible in in one sermon to cover everything in the Bible related to parenting because everything in the Bible relates to parenting because all of it is shaping us to be Christ-like in our thinking and our affections and our behavior and that makes us better equipped to be the kind of parents that God intends. This can be a very scary, sobering reality. You can't fake good parenting. You can't just learn a few tips and tricks and habits. You can't do it in 30 minutes of quality time a day. But it's also a very freeing thing. You don't have to read every good book on parenting to be a good parent. You don't have to keep up with every blog post that a mom posted about mothering to be a good parent. You have to be Christ-like and submit to the scriptures and how God calls you to live in all of life and as a parent. Our primary focus as parents must be on the Lord. So this Father's Day, we've been reminded of the parental responsibility of fathers. We've been warned about the potential failures of parents and equipped with the particular tools of parents and reminded to keep the primary focus of parents on the Lord. You know, if you're already down the road of parenting and and look back with some regret, maybe this isn't what has characterized your parenting. Maybe that's because you have been parenting with a focus on self and And maybe that's a reflection of the fact you've been living with a focus on self. As I said, Ephesians 6.4 comes towards the end of Ephesians. It's only possible if you understand the, the rest of Ephesians about how we are saved by grace through faith, that we are hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. If you've never repented and trusted in Christ, your biggest need today is not to be a better father, but to come humbly to God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you weren't in Christ when your kids were in the home, but you've been saved since then, later in life, or, or you simply didn't know and understand God's intent for your family, or you were or are sinfully distracted and, and have neglected the priorities that God has given you of consistent discipline and instruction. Maybe you're a father here today who's just been content to let your wife primarily parent your kids. Let me encourage you to make the most of the time you have left. You may need to confess your sin to your children and seek their forgiveness. You may need to humble yourself and establish some new patterns in your home. But don't just throw in the towel because you didn't start well. God calls us to 
to trust him and to be faithful as we move forward. And if you're a parent today and this is your desire, this is what you are striving for as a parent, don't lose heart. On the difficult days when your kids aren't responding like you wish they were, when you think this isn't producing the fruit, I don't see a future vice president in my child today. Keep striving to obey the Lord in faithfulness. When your own sinful heart is on display, know that parenting is about God changing you as well. Keep coming back to the clarity of God's word. One simple short verse, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What a rich verse of God's wisdom and commands. May we embrace that ourselves. May we encourage one another and others to live in accordance with the wisdom and word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in the gift of fathers. We rejoice in the fact that you have called many in this room to be fathers and parents and Lord, it's a tremendous responsibility that you have given, an opportunity. We want to be faithful to that end. Lord, we recognize how short we fall of your standard and how easily we make things about ourselves. I pray that you would forgive us and that you would equip us to be faithful in whatever season of life we're in. Lord, for those actively parenting kids in their home, may they be focused on on loving you well and filling their own hearts and minds with your word so that that can overflow into the way that they parent their kids. Lord, for the kids in this room, I pray they would thrive under the faithful parenting of, of their parents. I pray that they would embrace the discipline and instruction of the Lord and that they would grow to, to love you and know you, that they would surpass their parents in their devotion to Christ. Lord, for those in this room who are not currently parenting kids in the home, I pray they'd be an encouragement to others. For those that are grandparents, might they have wisdom to be investing in the next generation and encouraging their own adult children as well. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word and the wisdom that it gives. May we be faithful to apply it even this week. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.